Well, this evening is a, a truly momentous occasion. Uh, this is the first time I have ever preached wearing shorts. Now, I do hope that uh, the sight of my legs through the pulpit won't prove to be too much of a distraction. Um, but we've had this such a long period of hot weather, I, I'm struggling to remember when I last wore long trousers. No, actually, I do know, I do know. It was two weeks ago when I preached at Burstall, and I didn't think they were ready for my legs. <laughs> so, you know, keep your eyes up, not down there. So we're continuing in, in 1 Peter. Um, I wonder... Do you think the Bible is easy to understand, or do you think it's hard to understand? Do you think the Bible is clear, or do you think the Bible is confusing? Not really a very fair question, is it? But uh, the point I'm trying to get across is that the answer is yes and no. Um, if you read any systematic theology, if you turn to the chapter on scripture or the Bible or the word of God, you're almost certain to find uh, a heading uh, of a section that will say the perspicuity of scripture. don't know why they use the word perspicuity, but they always seem to use that word. But basically it means clarity. Uh, and you see that heading and you think, ah, oh, they are saying that scripture is clear. And then you read it and you realise what they mean is that enough of the, the word of God is clear enough for ordinary people to know and find out God's way of salvation. But other parts are less clear. And some parts are even very unclear. Well, last time uh, we were in 1 Peter, we looked at chapter 3, verse 18, the, the, the verse that Chris put up just now. And I suggest that is a very clear verse of scripture. Not only is it clear, uh, it, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful verse because it, it speaks to us, doesn't it, of the atonement that Jesus made for our sin. Uh, we saw that Jesus suffered and died on the cross to make atonement. Peter said that Jesus suffered for sins. He was making atonement. He was paying the price of sin. And we particularly noted four things about that atonement. We saw that it was ultimate because Peter said, for Christ also suffered once for sins. It, it was something that he did once and forever. It was ultimate. Uh, we saw the means of that uh, atonement. It was substitutionary because Peter said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous one, was, took the place of us, the unrighteous ones. He was our substitute. He acted in our place and on our behalf. And we saw the purpose of the atonement. It was restoration because Peter said that he did so that he might bring us to God. And then lastly, we saw the outcome. And the outcome was success, because Peter spoke of him being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I suggest that is clear. 
And for believers in Christ, uh, it's thrilling, isn't it? We rejoice in those great and wonderful truths. But that leads into the most difficult passage in the letter. Uh, speaking of 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, Martin Luther said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the Apostle meant. Well, that's what we're looking at tonight. <laughs> so no, no tall order here. Um, from the moment I decided to start preaching through 1 Peter, I knew this verse was laying in wait for me. It's been looming uh, over me throughout all of, all of these years. Uh, and now uh, the moment is here. We've got to face it. Um, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, Peter said, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which is uh, the unstable twist, which the ignorance uh, and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. You could well say that Peter's a fine one to talk, can't you? <laughs> now, last time we, um, we concentrated on verse 18. Um, because I didn't really want the difficulties in the passage to distract us from the wonderful truths in verse 18. So we didn't really consider what the end of verse 18 actually means. Uh, we were content to say that being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, shows the success of the atonement that Jesus made. And of course that's true. Uh, but it's also the point at which the passage gets complicated and it leads into the difficult words that we have in verses 19 and 20 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's no exaggeration to say that I've wrestled with those verses for months. Um, that was partly trying to understand what the passage means, partly trying to decide how to present it. But because it is such a, a difficult passage, obviously there are many different interpretations that have been suggested. Some of them are, are fanciful, to say the least, and they can quite quickly be dismissed. Others are much more credible, but there are none without problems. Uh, most of the commentators tend to just outline uh, a number of the most commonly held views and then present the numerous arguments for and against uh, each of those views. I'm not sure there's a great deal of, of value uh, in doing that, and besides it would be very time-consuming uh, to do it. We'd probably spend an awful lot of time and end up getting nowhere anyway. So I'm not going to go through the different different views and so on. 
Um, rather, I've decided to, to simply explain the interpretation uh, that I've come to, the interpretation that I feel most comfortable with. Now, that doesn't coincide with any of the main views, so if nothing else, you're going to hear something new tonight. <laughs> you might not agree with me by the end of it, but it will be something you've not quite heard before. I'm, I'm guessing, anyway. Um, I'm not claiming that it's the result of my own brilliant insights or analysis or deductions. Um, I, I'll confess that I've been greatly helped by John Brown's commentary uh, on 1 Peter. That's John Brown of Edinburgh, not of Haddington. Um, I'm not claiming that I've discovered the, the key that miraculously unlocks the passage. Um, I'm certainly not being dogmatic in, in what I'm saying here, because as with all the other interpretations, it's not without some difficulties. It's simply the, an interpretation that I feel more comfortable with than any other view I've come across. Now, you'll notice I've entitled the sermon The Power of Gospel Proclamation. Um, the reason for that might not be immediately apparent. When, when you read the verses, you're probably thinking, where did that title come from? Um, hopefully, it will be much clearer once we've explored the passage. But before we uh, attempt to un unravel the passage, I think we need to make some preliminary observations so, firstly, uh, as with any uh, attempt to interpret a, a Bible passage, we need to know the context. So, you'll see that the section from verse 18 to 22 begins with those words, for Christ also. So, that word for immediately points us back to what's gone before, doesn't it? It points us back to verses uh, 13 to 17. And it gives the basis for what Paul is saying here. Well, what had he been saying? Well, he'd been talking about suffering for righteousness' sake and saying that it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So our interpretation of verses 18 to 22 must be such that it provides some uh, encouragement uh, to believers who are suffering for their faith in Christ. Uh, secondly, although we stopped at the end of verse 18 last time, that is actually mid-sentence. So Peter's thought process continues into verse 19 and onwards. Therefore, how we interpret verses 19 to 20 is very dependent on how we understand that phrase at the end of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And in the third uh, preliminary observation, I think, is, uh, I think it's significant to note that verses 19 to 22 seem to refer to things about Jesus that were subsequent to or dependent upon his being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Um, whatever we understand by being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, that they seem to be linked, uh, they seem to be two simultaneous occurrences, they belong together. And then verse 19 says, in which he went and proclaimed. So you see, his going and proclaiming, again, however we understand that, seems to be 
her subsequence was being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. It follows on from that. It's dependent upon his having been made alive in the spirit. And in verse 21 speaks uh, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So having been put to death uh, in the flesh, it goes on to speak of him being raised from the dead, being made alive in the flesh. Following on from that, we read in verse 22 that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So that speaks of his ascension to heaven and then his reign in heaven at the right hand of God. So his going and proclaiming and his resurrection and his ascension and his reign all stem from or flow out from his having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That's the source of it all. So that also suggests that to understand verses 19 to 22, we first need to uh, establish what being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, actually means. So what is meant by Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? Um, The ESV puts it as put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, The NIV and the New King James Version have been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Now, linguistically, uh, in in both clauses there, it can either be in or by. Either would be correct. So there are other possible translations in that case aren't there you've got four permutations could also be uh, being put to death by the flesh but made alive by the spirit or being put to death by the flesh but made alive in the spirit so got four possible permutations there um, and we need to try to work out which of those is, is most likely correct now a few of the commentators take the first phrase being put, uh, as being, being put to death by the flesh. And in doing that, they are saying that Jesus was put to death by human beings. And of course, that's true. Peter said as much, didn't he, in his sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, Men put Jesus to death. But describing that as being put to death by the flesh, um, it's a clumsy way of expressing it uh, at best, isn't it? If you take the phrase to be being put to death in the flesh, that that seems a, a much more natural expression. And it would then simply mean that Jesus died bodily. His body was put to death. And it also seems to make sense, given that Peter goes on in verse 21 to speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, his being raised to life, bodily. Well, if we're right in considering being put to death in the flesh as being the correct translation, then I think it's reasonable to take it that but made alive in the spirit is also correct. It seems unlikely that in would change to by in the space of of one sentence. So, 
I think we can take it that the uh, as we have it in the DSV is correct. It's being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I think we'll find further support for that conclusion as we continue in the passage. Now, I'm sure nobody would have any difficulty in accepting that being put to death in the flesh means that he died bodily. But what are we to understand by made alive in the spirit? I think to answer that question, we first need to establish what's meant by the spirit here. Um, If you read the commentators, there's basically three schools of thought on that. Uh, Some take it to refer to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some take it to refer to the spiritual realm, which is a bit vague and they seem to have different uh, nuances to that. But uh, that's how some take it. And then thirdly, they take it to refer to Jesus' spirit. The man Christ Jesus had a body and a soul, just as we do. And they they take the spirit here to be referring to Jesus' spirit. So those are the three options. Um, Which of those do we, we think is most likely? Well, given that we've decided that in the spirit is more likely than by the Spirit, it seems unlikely that Peter has the Holy Spirit in mind. It also seems to be clear that there's a contrast here between flesh and spirit. And in view of that contrast, since the flesh refers to Jesus' body, then it seems likely to me that the spirit here refers to his spirit. If that's so, how are we to understand but made alive in the Spirit? After all, uh, his Spirit was already alive. His Spirit didn't die when he was crucified on the cross. Uh, His body was killed. But but when a human being dies, their, their body is no longer alive, but their spirit or soul lives on. So how are we to understand Jesus' spirit uh, being made alive? Well, the Greek word that's been translated here as made alive is zupio. And besides meaning to make alive or to give life, it can also mean to increase life. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon describes that sense as Endue with new and greater powers of life. Now, if Peter is using Zupio in that sense, then he'd be saying that when Jesus suffered to make atonement, although his body died, his spirit was in some sense made even more alive than it was before. His spirit had new and greater powers of life as a direct consequence of his dying on the cross. Okay, in what sense was his spirit made even more alive than it was before he suffered on the cross? Well, I think perhaps we get a clue to that from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, where we read, Thus it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Of course, that last Adam refers to Jesus, uh, and we're told that he became a life-giving spirit. So, that the man Christ Jesus wasn't always a life-giving spirit. That is what he became. Well, how? It's surely through his death on the cross. You know, the idea is perhaps uh, a bit similar, uh, a bit similar to what we see in Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that's, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, Jesus is the founder of our salvation, and we're told he was made perfect through suffering. Now, of course, that's not suggesting that Jesus was sinful in any way before he suffered. What it's saying is that through suffering, he was perfected, as the Saviour, it's only by suffering that atoning death on the cross that he is able to save. But before that and without that, he couldn't save. It's because he suffered that death. That's what gave him the power to actually give new life and save from sin. And Jesus was very aware of the consequences that would flow from his death. So we read in John 12... 23 to 24 that he said the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified truly truly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit obviously jesus is using pictorial language there but he's alluding to his own death and the fact that it would result in much fruit being born it it would it would give life. His, his death would lead to life. And in John twelve, thirty-two to 33, he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, again, he's speaking of his death, and the fruit of it would consist of people being drawn to him. To what end? Well, following his atoning death, uh, He's made more alive in the spirit. He's become a life-giving spirit. So people are drawn to him to receive life from him. And the New Testament is, is full of references to new life and eternal life uh, being given by Jesus, being received from Jesus. So in, in John 17, looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said in verses 1 and 2, as he faced the cross, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, he can give eternal life, but only because he went to the cross. John 10.10 10, we read, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 6 speaks of him as, as the bread of life who gives life to the world. And for the sake of time, I, w- I won't look at that chapter, but it's well worth 
reading through the whole of John 6, you, you'll find it's, it's full of wonder, the wonderful truth that there's eternal life for all who come to faith in him. John adds his own personal testimony uh, to the truth of Jesus' words when he says in 1 John 5, 11 to 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So Jesus is able to give eternal life as a result of him being put to death in the flesh, but made more alive in the Spirit. Moving on then into verse 19, uh, we read, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, the ESV has in which other versions have by whom or through whom. Um, that they've, they've used that word uh, whom because they've already decided that the spirit is the Holy Spirit. But in actual fact, the, the Greek uh, doesn't uh, the, the Greek doesn't have uh, whom it, it is in which the SV is correctly uh, translating the Greek there. And I think that gives us further confidence that we're right to think that Peter had been saying it was Jesus' spirit uh, that had been made alive. So, in that enlivened, invigorated, life-giving spirit, we're told that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Right, how are we to understand that? What is meant by Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison? I don't know what comes to your mind when, when you see those words together, proclaim and prison in the same sentence, but it immediately makes me think of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth when he read from Isaiah chapter 61. We read about it in Luke 4, 17 to 21. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The, son, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus was claiming that he was the one who had been promised who would proclaim liberty to the captives. In view of that, when Peter said that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I take it that what he proclaimed was liberty, freedom, deliverance. Deliverance from what? Well, notice that this uh, is proclaimed to spirit, spirits in prison. So it's uh, a proclamation of delivery from spiritual captivity. So therefore, I take it that spirits in prison 
it is a reference to natural, fallen, sinful human beings. We are all, by nature, spirits in prison. That's a, a very striking image, isn't it? The, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which means breath or, or breeze. And it, it conveys the idea of, of unbounded freedom. You think of Jesus saying, the wind blows where it will. It's that, that image of, of being unshackled, of, of being completely free. Yeah, we talk of a, a free spirit, don't we? And, and we intuitively feel that that's how spirits ought to be. So there's something very tragic or, or grotesque about an imprisoned spirit. But that's the picture uh, of the awfulness, of the captivity of sinful men. We are naturally captive to sin and death. Paul described that natural condition in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. How are you set free from being captive to death? Well, it's by being made alive. So Paul continues in verses 4 and 6 by saying, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That life-giving spirit, we're made alive in and through him. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So to summarise so far, Jesus died bodily, but as a result of that death, his spirit was made more alive so that he became a life-giving spirit. As such, he went and proclaimed liberty to lost sinners. Well, that begs the question, when and how did he go and proclaim? The flow of verses 18 and 19 suggests that he went and proclaimed following his death. Uh, the fact that the text says that he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed suggests that he went and proclaimed spiritually rather than physically. It wasn't that Jesus bodily went and preached to anyone. No, it, it, this was a, a spiritual proclamation. Now those two observations coupled with subsequent New Testament uh, subsequent New Testament history suggests that the phrase he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison is referring to the proclamation of the gospel to the world by his church. So after his resurrection and before his ascension, we read in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of new of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After that, he ascended. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And then what happened? Well, read Mark 16, 19 to 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. You see, they preached everywhere as commanded. But it was the Lord who worked and confirmed. Jesus was proclaiming liberty to the captives through his people. In Ephesians 2.17, speaking of Jesus, Paul said, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Now clearly, Jesus hadn't preached in person to the Ephesian Christians. Some may have heard the gospel through other Christians before Paul came. Um, Others will have heard the gospel when when Paul was there. Uh, Christ had proclaimed it to them, but it was through the instrumentality of his people. Romans 15, 18 to 19, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of God so that from Jesus and uh, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ Paul preached and worked but it was clear that any gospel fruit was what Christ had accomplished through him that was Jesus proclaiming liberty to the spirits in prison now you might think that could be a feasible interpretation perhaps you don't, I don't know but you might think that's a feasible interpretation so far but what about verse 20 where Peter goes on to say because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Doesn't that throw a spanner in the works by saying that that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah? Well, I don't think so, because I don't think that is what verse 20 is saying. So next, let's think about what is being said about the days of Noah. The ESV has, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Uh, but the Greek text does not have because they at all. It should simply be who formerly did not obey. The phrase spirits in prison well, as we've already seen, really, it's appropriate for all people in all ages, ever since the fall. People today are spirits in prison. So were people in Peter's day. And so were the people back in Noah's day. Peter's really making two statements here about 
the spirits in prison. Firstly, he's saying that Jesus went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. That is to lost sinners. Secondly, he's saying that what particularly characterised the spirits in prison in Noah's day was that they did not obey. It's not to say that he went to the spirits in prison in Noah's day. Um, to help us understand the sense of the, the sentence construction here, it might be helpful to perhaps consider a statement such as, Theresa May went to the Americans, who formerly were our enemies in the days of the War of Independence. That's a true statement. We all remember it well. Do you remember the, the loving with Donald Trump? That's a true statement. But it's certainly not saying that Theresa May went to America in the 18th century. So it is here, saying that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey, when God's uh, patience waited in the days of Noah, isn't saying that he went in the days of Noah. Well, if that's so, why mention the days of Noah at all? Well, firstly, notice that word formally. That, that means before. Before what? Well, surely it's referring to before the death of Christ. Now, as we've seen, this passage began with the atoning death of Christ. And a contrast is now being made between before that death and after that death. Since his atoning death, things have changed. We have a, an indication of what's changed. If secondly, we note the, the emphasis on the fact that only few were saved in Noah's day. That it really was few is emphasised by Peter saying that is eight persons. You know, out of all the people alive at the time, eight persons is few. Few were saved. Few responded. And that was the case throughout Old Testament times. You know, listen to Isaiah uh, chapter 49, 3-5. But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. You can, you can sense his, his frustration. You can sense his, his despair. He he'd declared God's message and it had been ignored. Completely ignored. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer clearly is very few at best. The point is that formerly, before Christ came, as in the days of Noah, the spirits in prison were generally unresponsive to the proclamation of salvation that God offered them. They did not obey. In proclaiming, uh, in Peter's day and onwards... As a result of Jesus' death and his having been made alive in the Spirit, he has been proclaiming powerfully and effectively to the spirits in prison through the preaching of the Gospel by his church. How, how different it was on, on the day of Pentecost when uh, Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison through Peter's preaching and 5,000 
were saved in one day. And since then, Jesus has been proclaiming liberty to the spirits in prison through the preaching of his people throughout the whole world. And we see the ultimate result of that in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no man can number. Puts, puts eight in the shade, doesn't it? Great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, what an encouragement to Peter's suffering readers. They might be suffering for righteousness' sake, but they'd been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ, who said in, in John eight thirty six. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. They'd be made alive by him, so that their, their present lives were abundant, and they'd received eternal life through him. He'd suffered and died, but has been resurrected and gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. His suffering led to glory, not just for himself, but ultimately for all who follow him. That is surely a great encouragement for us too, to keep going despite all that the world might throw at us, knowing what he's done for us and he's doing for us, and doing in us, and he's preparing for us, is surely a great incentive to keep trusting him, to keep serving him, to declare the gospel message, because it has power, because Jesus died and rose again, and is a life-giving spirit. So, may we be encouraged to declare the gospel message to those who are currently spirits in prison. May it be our prayer that we see imprisoned spirits being set free through the proclamation of the gospel message. We're going to close with that wonderful 